for the rest of us. Probably not any surprise. We're heading back to Exodus, a.k.a. Safer Schmote, a.k.a. the Book of Names. And so if you are grabbing a pew Bible, page 51 will be helpful this morning. The words will be on the screen behind me as well. We continue today working our way through what is the Torah, the first five books of our Bible, what I've been calling the Jesus backstory, in the same way that each one of us has a backstory. Right, Each one of us has this history of experience, joys and sorrows, trials, right? both, both our own and those of, of generations that have gone before, right? all of it forming and shaping who we are today. And in the same way, we have the Torah offering us the backstory to the, to the life of Jesus. And so with that, we are today working our way, taking it Parsha by Parsha, noting there are 54 parshiot, the Torah is divided into 54 parshiot, and today we come to Parsha Yitro, Exodus 18 and 1, and it travels through all the way to the end of chapter 20. 18 and 1 actually begins, Vayishma Yitro, which translates now, or and, va and, Vayishma and heard, Yitro, Jethro. And what is it that Jethro heard? We read, Kiyotzi Yahweh at Israel Mimitzrayim. How had brought Yahweh, Israel, out of Egypt. In our word order, it becomes, and how Yahweh had brought Israel out of Egypt. And so, straight off here in Parsha Yitro, a couple of things happen. One is, we are reintroduced to Jethro, the father-in-law to Moses. And with that, we are also reminded of the, of the central theme, of the dominant theme throughout this entire book. Right? The, over, the overarching sort of narrative is the exit, is the escape, is the exodus out of Egypt. How Yahweh, the fullness of the presence of God, how Yahweh brought the people Israel out of, out of Egypt. At least that is the primary theme for the first half of Exodus. The first half encapsulating the first 17 chapters, chapters 1 through 17. And it's here then in 18 and 1 we read by Yishma Yitro. It acts like kind of a summary, a kind of a, a summary statement, a wrapping up. And so think of this as a play. And at this particular point, we would be, well, the curtain would be coming down, we would begin to clap, we would stand up, and we would head out the door for what is the intermission? Now, what is interesting is that when the audience returns, they return, the play picks up with chapter 19 and runs from chapter 19 all the way through to 40. Which hopefully then begs the question for us, well, what about 18? Which according to ancient Jewish rabbinical scholarship, chapter 18 is a rather innocuous, bland, mundane chapter that's really kind of sandwiched between, think, Act, act 1, right, which is, is the epic exodus. It's the, the parting of the Red Sea, and, and, and it's the, the, the waves and the wind, and, and, and between that and Act 2, which is, which is Mount Sinai, the giving of the Ten Commandments, but it's, it's God descending in fire, it's smoke billowing, it's lightning, it's thunder, and again, sandwiched in between Acts 1 and 2 is kind of this intermission. 
And so what about 18? What does 18 have to offer us? It's a question, again, posed by rabbinical scholarship. As Rabbi David Block puts it, in between the Exodus and Sinai, we get a few vignettes that seem disconnected from the story. And this Yitro story is one of them. He goes on, why would these epic events, in which God shows his power with Egypt and then reveals himself to Israel, be interrupted by this seemingly insignificant story about Yitro? And yet, as we have seen, I think over and over and over again, right? it is the, the seemingly insignificant that rises up again and again all through the Torah, offering us something of, of meaning and, and value and, and worth. Right? As, as we've seen, in the same way that in the midst of our, of our ache, our pain, our, our suffering, Right? We, we, read of, we read of a God who, who says you matter. A God who says, says you are precious. A God who loves you. A God who, a God who knows your name. Right? Look up at the, the sky, he says, and count, and count the stars. In the same way that in the midst of the groaning and the crying out, we read of a God who says, I hear you and I remember I hear your cry. Even when you can't put it into words, he says, I hear your, your groaning. Right in the midst of when things seem most desperate, when things seem the darkest, the most hopeless. Right, it's even then, especially then, that God says, I hear you. Right, I, I will bring you out. I will free you. I will redeem you. I will take you, he says, as my, as my own. And as Rabbi David Block suggests, we find it here again, kind of woven into the fabric of the, the seemingly insignificant. Noting the summary statement is followed by Jethro actually traveling to Moses. He's in Midian. He hears the story. He travels to Moses. Moses again recounts the story for him. It's now the next morning. Moses, he goes out, and we read that he presides over disputes among the people. Right? Matters of disagreement. Think of all the sorts of ways that we can be at odds with one another. And so here in verse 14, we read, When his father-in-law saw all Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge? while all these people stand around you morning till evening. Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Verse 16, whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Yitro replied, what you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God, and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions, show them the way they are to live, and how they are to behave. And so here's this kind of conversation between Yitro and Moshe, between Jethro and, and Moses. And in effect, it begins with, with Jethro asking him, what, what are you doing? And Moses says, well, I'm doing what needs to be done. 
To which Jethro then responds, and he says, well, that's, that's not good. Motob in Hebrew. It's interesting that the only other place we see or read Lotob in the Torah is in Genesis 2 and 18, when we read God saying, it is not good, it is Lotob for man to be alone. And here it's kind of the same idea. You will wear yourselves out, Jethro says. The work is too heavy. You cannot handle it, he says, alone. He then goes on, he says, but select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain. Appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases, they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter, because they will share it with you. And then this is where I kind of want to land today. Verse 23, we read, If you do this, and God so commands, you, you will be able to stand the strain. And it says, And all these people will go home satisfied. Which I think is interesting as far as translations go. Satisfied, it's a nice word, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's an agreeable word. Right? We, we read it and we feel good, right? Everybody goes home and they're happy, they're content, they're pleased. And that is all true, and yet I think sadly, satisfied leaves us entirely unsatisfied. Making the point here that underlying the Hebrew in this seemingly insignificant passage is the word shalom. Shalom is really more than just a word. It's I think of it as an experience, as, as, as maybe even as a, as a movement. Again, we read, it begins with disputes, right? It, disputes and disagreements, all the sorts of ways that we are at odds with one another, and yet then it ends with shalom, which, okay, satisfied. But we often think of shalom as peace, and it is peace. In context of this particular passage, it, it carries, according to ancient Hebrew scholarship, it, it, it means to be made whole. And so satisfied, okay but it's this idea of to be made whole. And it's this idea of shalom that we actually find flowing in and all through the Torah, all through the backstory of Jesus, but not only there, right? It flows into the very life of Jesus himself. We read of this in the Gospel of John, John chapter 14. Jesus here is speaking to his disciples. I could say reflecting on this reality. He begins with, do not let your hearts be troubled. And then he says, believe. Again, that's pistuo, which if we think back to last week, think trust. Think leaning into. Right? It's kind of the difference between there's a chair and I believe that chair will hold me up. That's belief. And then going and actually sitting in it. That would be trust. And so when we read pistuo, pistis, I want us to think trust and leaning into. And then dropping down to 16 and 33, Jesus then wraps up, which is a long sort of discourse. He says, I've told you these things so that in me, trusting in me, leaning into me, he says, you may have peace. Peace being Irene in the Greek, which is the translation in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. 
shalom. It's a true, in fact, one, one midrash. Midrash is both a, a mode of interpretation and a, and a body of commentary. And in one midrash, Midrash Tanahuma Shoftim 18, it is there that we read, all that is written in the Torah was written for, it says, the sake of peace, for the sake of shalom, for the, for the sake of, of to be made whole. Right, that ancient Hebrew understanding, to be made whole. We, we, we could phrase this, all that is written in Torah is written that we be made whole. Author and theologian Aviezer Ravitsky, he writes, Peace is among the most hallowed Jewish values. The sages went to great lengths in their praise of peace to the point of viewing it as a meta-value, the summit of all other values. And then he adds, the pursuit of peace is the obligation of the individual and the goal of social regulations and structures. Which is precisely what we see here, not only in Exodus 18, but we also find in Matthew chapter 5. Again, Jesus up on a mountainside. He's sitting down, he's teaching his disciples. They all gather around at his feet, and at 5 and 9, Jesus says, Oh, the blessedness of the peacemakers. Oh, the blessedness of the shalom makers. For they, those who pursue peace, will be called children of God. A peace, writes the scholar William Barclay, that in Hebrew always means everything which makes for a person's highest good. He goes on in the Middle East, when people say to one another, Salaam, which is the same word, they do not mean that they wish for others only the absence of evil things. They wish for them the presence of all good things. Which hopefully invites us to do some reflecting. Now, a bit of a spoiler alert. Next week is Parsha Mishpatim. And next week is really going to kind of be a continuation of today. Continuing on this idea of, of Shalom. Mostly because in just the first two chapters of Parsha Mishpatim, we read of Shalom 14 times. And so, we'll revisit We'll call it Act 2. Today is Act 1. But for today, I, I again want us to notice, right, this path, this journey, it goes by the way of community. Jethro says this is loto, right? This is not good, right? You're, you're going to wear yourselves out, not just Moses, but, but the entire community. He says the work is too heavy. You can't handle it alone. Select others, appoint them so that they may share it with you, right? In other words, this journey is from dispute and disagreement from, from being at odds with one another, and it moves toward peace, toward, toward shalom. And that happens by way of community. That happens in the midst of the activity of community. The sense that we are all in this together. We could say, where one is without peace, all are without peace. To quote from Martin Luther King, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one, affects all. Is that reality that author at least Boulding 
had in mind when she wrote, we urgently need individually in our families and in all the groups we work with to spend significant time in deep reflection about and envisioning of an earth world that has become the peaceable garden it was created to be. Which is precisely the reason the prophet Jeremiah recorded for us in Jeremiah 29. Gives us words that, that help us to envision, words that help us to imagine, words that give, give us a paradigm for how we are to get on with living in this way of peace, in this way of shalom. This is early now in the 6th century BC. The southern kingdom has been decimated. Many have been exiled to, to Babylon. And it's into the midst of all of the disputes, all of the disagreements, into the midst of all those sorts of ways that we are at odds with others. Jeremiah 29, verse 5, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. It's an invitation to live in the midst of community. Even in the midst of community where we don't where we don't all see eye to eye. In the midst of a community where we don't think alike, talk alike, look alike. God says, God says, do life there. Live, live into that space. Verse 7 also says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to Yahweh on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Noting the word welfare here is, you guessed it, a translation of, of shalom. Again, in other words, this, this, this journey from dispute and disagreement and at, at odds with, toward peace, toward shalom, it goes the way of community. It goes the way of the activity of the community. For in the other's shalom, you will find your shalom. Right Where one is without peace, all are without peace. An inescapable network of, of mutuality, right? A single garment of, of destiny. Whatever affects one, affects all. And the reality is, we will have disputes, we will have disagreements. We don't all think alike. We don't all look alike, talk alike, walk alike. And yet, even then, especially then, we are invited to, to take the journey, to travel this road to peace, to, to shalom, that we might all be made whole. And it's in that space that I want to invite us this morning for a little bit of time here to consider, to reflect, to examine. Does my life reveal the attitude and activity of Shalom? When, I, when I'm in the midst of that dispute, that disagreement, when I don't see eye to eye with, with the other, does my life reveal the attitude and activity of shalom? And thinking kind of first about attitude, we 
could ask it this way, to borrow from the Midrash, we could ask, does my attitude slant toward all for the sake of peace? Does my attitude slant toward all for the sake of peace? We could ask, does my posture lean toward that all would be made whole? Is that the posture of my my heart, my mind, my activity? We could ask, considering the words of Aviezer Ravitsky, do I view peace as a meta-value, the summit of all other values? We can think of William Barclay and ask, do I wish for others the presence of all good things? And then with that, how is God inviting me to think differently regarding peace? And then we could go on and ask regarding our activity, does my life reveal the pursuit of peace? My time, my energy, my finances, my walk, my talk, is it does it reveal the pursuit of peace, of, of shalom? Do I, do I pursue shalom with those with whom I am at odds? Do I seek everything which makes for the other's highest good? And then finally, with whom is God asking me to go the way of shalom? And all these people will go home satisfied.